One thing is for sure, a 20-year streak is going to end of New York City having a Red Sox fan as a mayor. So that's kind of a bummer. (laughs) Can't come soon enough. That's wild that that's been allowed to continue. (laughs) Our tentacles are wide. We control the world. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We were off yesterday for Juneteenth. I hope everyone had a nice weekend. Today, Tuesday, Senate Democrats plan to bring wide-ranging voting legislation known as the For the People Act to the floor. Senate Republicans plan to filibuster the bill, meaning Democrats will have to come up with legislation that can get 10 Republican votes or amend the filibuster, both of which seem unlikely. This comes after Senator Joe Manchin proposed compromise voting legislation last week, which Republicans rejected. We'll talk about what comes next. We're also going to take a look at the debate playing out in schools, state legislatures, and on cable news over critical race theory and how Americans are reacting to it. According to a recent Economist poll, 64% of Americans have heard of the academic theory, and of that group, only half say they have a good idea of what it is. We've also got a good use or bad use of polling example for you all today. And I should say, happy Election Day to New York City. By the time you are listening to this, we may have some results from first choice picks in the mayoral race, but it's likely to be weeks before we actually know the winner of that race. Here with me today to discuss it all, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hello, Alex. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hello, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And I'd also like to say happy election day to all of New York State, because it is not just the city that is having elections today. Buffalo is electing a new mayor. There are municipal elections all over. So if you're in New York, uh, make sure you vote today. Look at me just showing my ass right off the bat. Just terrible New York City bias. Yes. Happy Election Day to all of New York State. Do you know if there are any other municipalities or states we should wish a happy Election Day to, Nathaniel? That's a good question. Why don't I pull up my calendar? There is a special election primary runoff in Alabama's 78th State House District. So happy Election Day to them as well. But that's all I'm following today. Wow. Imagine if we had forgotten. All right, now that we have that out of the way, let's ask our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling. And today's example was suggested by a listener after President Biden and Russian President Putin met last week. So this example comes from Joe Scarborough, the MSNBC Morning Show host. He tweeted a poll and wrote, quote, Trump voters prefer Putin to the democratically elected leaders of Canada, France, and the United States of America. When people tell you who they are, believe them, end quote. So he was referencing a poll from YouGov and The Economist asking voters, in this case specifically Trump voters, to rank their favorability of world leaders, including Joe Biden. So Biden had a 9% favorable rating and an 89% unfavorable rating, which is on par with other polling that we have. Trudeau had a 18% favorable rating and 61% unfavorable rating. And Macron had a 15% favorable rating and a 46% unfavorable rating. And they also asked about other world leaders. I think Boris Johnson was the most popular amongst Trump voters. But those are the ones that Joe Scarborough pointed out, the democratically elected leaders of Canada, France, and the United States of America. And then Putin, by comparison, had a 19% favorable rating and a 69% unfavorable rating. All right, folks, is Joe Scarborough's use of polling a good or bad use of polling? I think this was a mostly bad use of polling. I think the one 
interesting thing that he probably does have a point about is that Putin's numbers are better than Biden's. That's not great. I think those are clearly true because as you mentioned, Galen, the 19% favorable for Putin and only 9% for Biden and also Biden's unfavorable rating is approaching 90%, whereas Putin's is only 69. But I think with the other world leaders, I don't think this is such a good use of polling. So it seems like Scarborough was going based on just the favorable number, the 19% favorable for Putin. And technically that is a little bit higher than Trudeau and Macron at 18 and 15, but that's well within the margin of error. So I wouldn't make any assumptions about that. I would say that's that's about a tie. But then I think more importantly, the unfavorable rating is something you really have to look at. And like Putin still had the highest unfavorable rating of any of the world leaders that they tested even among Trump voters. So I think that clearly still shows that a super majority of Trump voters have a bad view of Putin. So sure, for the 19%, or I guess maybe for the 10% who have a favorable view of Putin, but not Biden, although about 10%, that doesn't speak very highly of them, I think. But I think we should avoid a painting with a broad brush here and not lose sight of the fact that the 69% unfavorable rating is still very high. I think another way to interpret this poll is that Trump supporters essentially like every other world leader, save Xi and Erdogan, who's the president of Turkey, better than Biden, which kind of lines up with what you would anticipate too among GOP politics around China and legislation there and anti-trade and whatnot, China being an enemy, and at least in the rhetoric among Republicans now. And so the other thing, you see pronounced support for Boris Johnson, which kind of makes sense given his political leanings and that the fact that this is Trump supporters. But I'm not really sure that this poll tells us anything other than Republicans who voted for Trump really dislike Biden, which I think we already knew. So I'm going to agree with Nathaniel and say bad. I was primarily looking at the Putin numbers. And I thought that was interesting because historically there was never a real big difference in how Democrats and Republicans viewed Russia. But there was a split during and after Trump's presidency because of how Trump handled his dealings with Putin and Russia. And there was another Gallup poll that I think came out in February, and it found the biggest partisan split in 20 years with how Americans viewed Russia. They asked who the United States' greatest enemy is, and only 6% of Republicans said Russia, compared to 47% of Democrats. You know, if we're looking specifically at the Putin numbers, I thought that was a good use of polling. But maybe when we're looking at this overall, probably not the best use of polling. So the question I have here is, is it actually useful to compare how partisans view domestic leaders with how they view foreign leaders, period? Because the way that partisans view domestic leaders is so subject to whatever partisan leanings that they have. And people are going to know a lot less about foreign leaders and maybe their partisan significance. And they just simply don't have the same partisan significance as any American leaders would have. So like, is it even fair to try to compare favorability ratings of domestic and foreign leaders? I see that point, but I also think it's not totally meaningless. I mean, if you do have people believing and trusting in, you know, liking Vladimir Putin uh, more than Joe Biden. I don't think that's great for American democracy. I am kind of in the camp where like, I would assume people living inside the U.S. might not know like the inner workings of every other country's politics. So I kind of agree with Nathaniel where it's like not completely useless, but I would definitely take these polling results with a grain of salt. As it relates to Putin though, Trump spent four years essentially trying to 
friend him, so dismissed a lot of his more aggressive behavior. So if Trump seemingly likes Putin, I wasn't surprised that his supporters have followed suit. Yeah, it's really hard for me in looking at this that 18% had a favorable view of Trudeau versus Biden. I just find that hard in the sense of the types of policies that Trudeau has pushed for as a more liberal politician, not that dissimilar from Biden in some ways, that there would be such a huge gap in terms of favorability among Trump supporters. So I read this more again as the grass is greener on the other side in most countries, and they're happy with another politician that isn't Biden in this case. That said, though, especially what Alex was saying about how Republican views have really shifted around Russia, it does perhaps signal to some extent to the desire around a macho fighter politician, which we've seen evidence of in other polls, that would certainly in part explain the support for Johnson, especially since it was so much more pronounced than any of the other world leaders. He's, you know, maybe the most Trump-equivalent politician there listed in this YouGov poll. So perhaps you could read a little into that, but I think comparing different world leaders in these different countries, what I'm taking away more from this survey is that Trump supporters really dislike Biden versus actually wanting Trudeau as president or something. Yeah, that's interesting, Sarah. I wonder if there's also like an anti-internationalism kind of America first element to this, because it is striking that Every foreign leader except for Johnson has a negative favorable rating. So I guess the Johnson is perhaps a point against that theory. Although he's kind of famously anti-international cooperation in some ways because of the Brexit campaign. Yeah, that's a great point. But obviously Trump voters do have this more inward looking, you know, they're not afraid to go to war to protect America, but generally I think they're more isolationist. So the last question I have here is, okay, so the 19% of Trump voters who say they have a favorable view of Putin, I wanted to know how that compared to Democrats. So I look back, and in 2018, during the height of Democratic displeasure with Russia and investigations into any collusion during the 2016 election, 9% of Democrats had a favorable view of Russian President Putin, according to Pew Research. That seems kind of high. I mean, at the same time, today, 9% of Trump voters have a favorable view of Biden. But like, what should we make of basically in all polls you see somewhere around 10% will say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I take the position that you probably wouldn't expect me to take. This also comes back to when we did that animal versus human polling, where you would still get somewhere around 6 to 10% of people who were like, yeah, I could definitely win in a fight against a lion. Are these trolls or is this just a kind of idiosyncratic type of voter that you, we just don't think of? I guess like mentally, whenever something is in 90% versus like single digits, I kind of think of it as basically as close to unanimous as you're going to get. I do think there are some people who troll posters a few percentage points. I also am sure that there is some Trump voter out there who approves of Biden because they are immune to partisanship or feel like, oh, we got to give the president a chance or something like that. So I think it's a combination. But the single digits, it's extremely low. I think that's the broad takeaway. All right. Well, let's leave things there. It seems like we had a unanimous support for bad use of polling by Joe Scarborough. Do I have that correct? Yeah. All right, let's move on and talk about the voting legislation Democrats are bringing to the floor today. But first, does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. House Democrats passed H.R. 1, or the For the People Act, back in 2019 as their first official legislation after winning back the House. It addressed a wide range of issues from voter registration and voter rolls to campaign finance, early voting and gerrymandering, and much more. Republican lawmakers don't support the bill, and that's meant that Senate Democrats have had to figure out how to proceed in their chamber. They've tried to pressure Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to amend the filibuster so they could pass some version of the bill with only Democratic votes. But Manchin and Sinema have maintained their opposition to amending the filibuster. Instead, they've called for a compromise package with Republicans. Last week, Manchin proposed a specific compromise that was quickly rejected by Republicans. And today, Senate Democrats will bring the For the People Act to the Senate floor, where it is certain to be filibustered by Republicans. So let's talk about what's going on and what happens next. You know, first and foremost, going back to the beginning of this legislation, why did Democrats make H.R. 1 their first order of business back in 2019? Well, I mean, because in 2019, Trump was in the White House and Republicans were in the Senate, this really was meant as a state of principle post-winning the 2018 midterms to say this is what the Democratic Party stands for. So it really did become a catch-all bill regarding election administration and voting rights, but then also stances on partisan gerrymandering, how elections should be administered, and really was very pie in the sky. So something I've kind of struggled with is why a bill passed in that kind of setting has become the end-all and be-all for the Democratic Party in trying to move forward on voting rights, which is a very important topic and something that they will take up in another bill, if not this one. But why they've tied their horse to that bill, I struggle with understanding, just given how different 2019 is from 2021. I mean, I think that a lot of the reforms in the bill are things that Democratic activists and voting rights advocates have wanted for a long time. And I think there is a view in the party, a one that we don't necessarily agree with, but I think there's a view in the party that opening up the franchise to as many people as possible will help them in elections. Certainly there is, I think, a better founded belief that the system currently is biased against Democrats, specifically the HR1 slash the For the People Act would attempt to address that by banning gerrymandering to the extent that that's possible. They would try to implement fair standards for house maps. So I think that's why it was a priority in 2019. I think you heard people talk about it coming off of the 2016 election as well. And, and obviously 2019 was the first time that Democrats had power again. But then, yeah, I mean, to Sarah's point, by 2021, new issues of election subversion and potentially overthrowing election results had also percolated and the bill was not updated accordingly. So what are Republican objections here? Oof, that's a hard one. But Manchin had issued a compromise to the Sweeping for the People Act. And essentially, he was saying that voter ID needed to be mandated in states. He still wanted an extended period for voting early, but with constraints. Same thing with expanding mail voting. Wanted to do it, but again, with restraints, just to people who said that they couldn't vote, not just no excuse. 
So he was trying to land on like a compromise, if you will, with Republican voters and lawmakers, but it was immediately shot down. And it seemed as if there was a lot of internal politicking among Democrats to say, okay, Manchin, what do you actually want from this? You say you won't support for the People Act as it currently stands. What does that look like? And it seems as if he drafted his memo stipulating, you know, what he would compromise on without talking to Republican lawmakers to try to see if that would be viable. And that's why I think largely today the vote is expected to fail. It's become the symbolic vote where Democrats, to my understanding, are going to take up Manchin's slimmed down version so that they can present a unified front to say that we're the party that stands for voting rights, for expanding the access to vote, and then no Republican will vote in favor. And so it'll set up that contrast. So Republicans were against the bill in its initial form, basically calling it an unwanted federal intrusion and state election administration. But like Sarah was saying, even with Manchin's proposed changes, I don't think a single Republican was like jumping at the opportunity to work with him. And then when Stacey Abrams came out and endorsed the bill and we had Roy Blunt and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying they were opposed to the bill and basically they invoked her endorsement as a reason for why they were against it. I think now the proposal is racialized in a way. The moment that Abrams endorsed the bill, it became Abrams' bill versus Manchin's. And then it became a dangerous proposal to back. And I would venture to say that the hope is to Republicans' base that Abrams inspires a kind of fear that Manchin, an older white male, can't provoke. So I've heard frequently the Republican criticism that voting law, elections law, is left up to states largely to decide. And we see that every election, right? States do this very differently, whether they have early voting or not, what requirements there are to vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How much of this debate is really truly about elections administration in America and that we believe as the Republican Party or what have you, that it is very important that this be done on the state level and not be done on the federal level versus these are just policies that Republicans don't support either because they think that genuinely that they make elections less secure or because they think they will help Democrats at the ballot box. Yeah, Gail, and I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I'm sure that many Republicans do genuinely not want the federal government to come in and make mandates regarding elections. But I also think that probably deep down their motivation is more partisan. I think that they do probably think that these proposals will help Democrats at the ballot box, even if that's not always true. They know that on state government levels, they have the advantage. There are more Republican states than there are blue states. And so kicking election administration down to the state level inherently does favor Republicans. And I also think that they are following the cues of Donald Trump, lest they be seen as soft on election security, quote unquote. I think they feel like they have to hew to the party line of absentee voting in particular is bad. And in posing H.R. 1 or the For the People Act serves a double purpose. It blocks nationwide, no excuse absentee voting, as well as all these other expansions. But it also allows these state governments run by Republicans, as we've covered before on the podcast, to pass additional voting restrictions. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems as if this has kind of become a zero-sum game where if Republicans give an inch on any type of voting rights legislation, it's going to be perceived as a victory for Democrats, and so they're just not going to play ball on that. One thing, the votes later today and then at some point later this year, the 
Senate will take up the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And right now, Murkowski has agreed to sponsor that with Manchin. I haven't seen reports of any other Republicans coming forward. But McConnell's already on the record saying that he didn't think it was strictly necessary because it's already illegal to discriminate on race. But the question always becomes in our elections, well, who's enforcing it? What does that look like from state to state? And I think at the tension at what you're getting at, Galen, there is this issue of like, well, let the states decide. And that's deeply embedded in the Republican ethos. But it's also true then that the two parties are signaling how they think about voting with the Democrats wanting to come forward and expand opportunities to vote and Republicans positioning themselves in this name of election security, but also in the name of not wanting as many people to vote. And there's a perception of that. That was something we found in our non-voters poll when we asked, do you think Democrats and Republicans want you to vote? And to be clear, respondents said it was true of both parties, but it was overwhelmingly true of Republicans in that survey and that perception that they don't want people like me to vote, particularly among Black and Hispanic Americans. I do think a lot of Republican opposition, like Nathaniel says, comes down to Trump. I just don't think the contemporary Republican Party will be on record backing something as substantial as voting rights legislation and be seen as being on the side as Democrats, especially when Trump continues to push the big lie and we see how that's playing out at the state level. So I have a couple questions about where things go forward from here. And I guess the first is about Joe Manchin. He's kind of said, my position on the filibuster is immovable and we need to work with Republicans. And then he comes up with this compromise proposal, which, as you mentioned, adds essentially voter ID so that every state in the country, you would have to have a voter ID in order to vote. But Democrats also said that the federal government would also be able to administer that ID so that people could vote. And then it would also have certain standardized early voting, automatic registration, things like that around the nation. But then not a single Republican supports it. So what is Manchin's position now? And does that mean that there's now another back and forth period where Democrats try to pressure him to amend the filibuster because his attempt at compromise was shown to be unworkable? And does that potentially bear any fruit? Or is this just the end of the road for this conversation? I thought that Manchin's decision to release a list of compromises in the first place suggested that he does want to pass some sort of voting rights bill, even if it's not this specific one. So I don't think this is necessarily the end of the road. And I can definitely see a situation where some of the provisions from the For the People Act are put into the John Lewis bill that's going to come up later this fall. And, you know, we'll see how that goes. But there is currently some Republican support for that. So is he just kind of saying, I don't support amending the filibuster, I don't support amending the filibuster, I don't support amending the filibuster, until all of a sudden it gets to the point where it's like, we've tried all of these different things. Okay, I'm okay with amending the filibuster in this very narrow way so that we can pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Does that seem like a strategy that he would be pursuing, or is that a Democratic pipe dream? Democratic pipe dream. I know The Intercept had this um, really great behind-the-scenes leaked audio of Manchin talking with backers of conservative Democrats and more moderate Republicans. And he did in that conversation say that, hey, I want to bring back the talking filibuster or maybe we, you know, lower the number of votes needed to beat back a filibuster. But then he very quickly in that audio followed up 
by saying that his bottom line has not changed. He's not on board with getting rid of it. Cinema on Monday published this essay saying, I do not want to weaken the filibuster. It's a mistake. It's giving a lot of coverage, both Cinema and Manchin, to other moderate Democrats in the Senate who feel this way but don't want to go on the record saying it. So, look, I think the Biden administration has made it clear that they want to pass some type of voting rights legislation. Obama was on the record of saying, you know, Manchin's compromise will not the end all be all was something that he wanted to see Democrats push forward. I think you will see this fight renewed around the John Lewis Act. Maybe you do see some kind of shift around the filibuster, but it would be a small shift. It's not going anywhere. And I think Democrats, to the extent they want to pass this agenda, do need to kind of realize that, whether that's getting on board with what Manchin proposed, but even given that Republicans rebuffed that, it would have to be something substantially different, right? That said, what Manchin did propose, there was a Monmouth University poll out earlier this week that showed Americans were really on board with that, including the requirement for voter ID. The one dividing point was voting by mail, which as we saw in the 2020 election, has just become a hugely polarizing issue given the rhetoric around it leading up to the election. Republicans are not on board with supporting that. And even with Manchin's proposal and Democrats being on board, the political benefit for Democrats is that they can now present as a united force in being pro-voting expansions, and they can paint Republicans as the party going against public opinion. So I do think this is largely symbolic on the Democratic side. Okay, so that's the role that Manchin plays and what we can expect from some version of the For the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But as you all mentioned at the top of the show, this type of legislation, ending gerrymandering and automatic voter registration, those kinds of things, were ideas from back in 2018 and previous to that before January 6th and attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So that is potentially quite a distinct issue from the things that this bill tries to address, you know, whether or not states can send different slates of electors or whether it's possible to try to overturn what those electors want in Congress. Is there the possibility that legislation that simply tries to address that could be proposed by Democrats? And obviously, we saw that there were plenty of Republicans who didn't like what they saw on January 6th. And could they get on board with something like that? The Huffington Post, or I guess it's called HuffPost now, actually reported yesterday on Monday that today, Tuesday, Democrats would be introducing a bill to address election subversion. So maybe folks who, when by the time they're listening to this, will know more than we do now. But this law reportedly is specifically meant to address the part of these Republican election restrictions that are being passed on the state level that attempt to take away the power of local election officials. So the law would not allow that anymore. I don't think that the new law that they're proposing would address things like the certification of electoral votes. But I, I think clearly you've seen some movement among Democrats toward that kind of corner of this election issue in recent weeks. It's hard to see, though, if that is taken up in Congress, how it faces a different trajectory than where we are now, given what Alex and Nathaniel were saying about how a lot of the current messaging around this bill is centered in the big lie and not wanting to be seen in support of an initiative that whether rightly or wrongly, would help Democrats. I think the fact that it's just sponsored by Democrats is honestly enough to say that this is too partisan, don't want to move forward with it. 
And given, too, that this has been passed in state legislatures, granted they've been GOP-controlled state legislatures, but still it's been passed by a legal measure. It's hard to see then that Republicans in the Senate are going to take a wildly different stance on that, throwing their down-ballot Republican legislatures under the bus. I mean, maybe they do, but Congress couldn't agree to vote on the January 6th commission. It's hard to see why they would take up this legislation that seems to want to push back against some of the voting restrictions that have come out since then. The smart play for Democrats, both from a capital D Democratic perspective and from a lowercase d perspective, would be some kind of very anodyne law that says, like, Congress can't overturn the results of a presidential election or something like that. I don't know legally how that would work if it would even be possible. But that seems to me like that should not be controversial. And so that would be something that maybe would have a chance to pass, at least get some Republican votes. And then if it didn't, I feel like that's also the kind of thing where like, if Joe Manchin is ever going to abandon or at least soften his support for the filibuster, if Republicans are blocking a bill that literally says don't overturn elections, I feel like that's the bill that would get him to budge. So when it comes to what lawmakers pay the most attention to, which is what their voters want and what's going to get them reelected, Sarah, you mentioned that there was polling that showed that parts of the For the People Act were pretty popular. Things like automatic voter registration, even ending gerrymandering, which is one of the more wide-ranging things within the For the People Act, these things poll relatively well. So does voter ID, to be clear, as you mentioned. According to a report today published by the New York Times, the Democratic group Priorities USA is going to spend $20 million on promoting these voting rights efforts, things like that. When it comes to the midterms or something like that, do people vote based on this? Historically, voting laws have not been something that reached the top of voters' top priorities. Those are typically the economy, healthcare, maybe immigration in a distant third. It often, though, is very practical bread and butter needs. One thing that came up a lot, for instance, in the lead up to the 2018 midterms was that the Mueller report and the Russia investigation were not top priorities for voters. I think what's happening right now will face a very similar trajectory. That said, though, it's tied up in broader cultural stances around what does the Democratic Party stand for? What does the Republican Party stand for? It's just harder, I think, to isolate the extent to which that drives a voter's behavior. But it's definitely part of the story that each party is trying to tell in the lead up to 2022. I think it's really interesting. I just don't think that voting rights as an issue has really been tested. It hasn't been front of mind the way it has been these last six months, really at any point in modern history. So I'm really interested to see if it is something that motivates people. I could see, for example, I think Nate has made this point on the podcast that maybe Democrats are able to avoid the typical midterm swoon because they feel like they're really amped up to vote because they feel like democracy is truly in danger. I think it would be smart politically for Democrats to use this as a wedge issue in 2022 in future elections if nothing passes. If there is some vote on the For the People Act in the Senate and all Democrats are a united front and Republicans are against that, I mean, that basically clarifies for even the least engaged voter where the two parties stand on voting rights. I don't know if voting rights is something that's going to be top of mind for voters heading into the ballot box, because like Sarah said, historically it has not been. But with the stakes being as high as they are and with this big push at the state and federal level essentially to restrict voting rights, I wonder if it will hold more importance to voters going forward. All right, let's move on and talk about the debate playing out in states 
over critical race theory. But first, shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. In the wake of George Floyd's murder and last summer's large-scale protests, conversation about the role that racism plays in American life have been far more present in politics, media, business, and in the culture writ large. Concepts like structural racism have become a popular part of Democratic politicians' lexicon, and there's also been a backlash, particularly to ideas like critical race theory and the New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project, which took a critical look at the role slavery played in the founding of the United States of America. More recently, states like Florida and Texas have moved to ban teaching of the 1619 Project or critical race theory in schools, and it's become a hot-button issue in schools around the country. So let's talk about the contours of this political debate and what Americans think about it. And to start, one of the things that we do see in polling is that a lot of Americans don't really know what critical race theory is. So here's a definition I found from the Wall Street Journal. It's, quote, critical race theory is an academic concept first developed by legal scholars in the early 1970s. It argues the legacy of white supremacy remains embedded in modern-day society through laws and institutions that were fundamental in shaping American society. And then a Purdue University summary of critical race theory expanded on that, quote, Most CRT scholarship attempts to demonstrate not only how racism continues to be a pervasive component throughout dominant society, but also why this persistent racism problematically denies individuals many of the constitutional freedoms they are otherwise promised in the United States governing documents, end quote. So, first of all, I want to get a sense of whether those definitions of critical race theory are basically what the debate is about in politics. Is this what politicians are talking about when they're debating critical race theory, or has it morphed into something else? This is pretty on par with the definition I've seen of CRT, too. Its backers will say, like you said, Galen, that American society gives a leg up to white people and that things could be made more equitable if white people acknowledge the societal advantages of having been born white. But you have critics, on the other hand, who will argue that CRT stokes divisions and might even say it's racist to examine the role of race in U.S. systems and structures. They will also say that critical race theory is Marxist framework that suggests the nation is inherently evil or that white people shouldn't feel guilty about their skin color. So critics are going a little bit off from what critical race theory actually does but that seems to be the two main arguments that I'm seeing for it. Alex is right in the sense that where the current debate is now is far from what I think was conceived of in the ivory towers, as is often the case with debates like this. And it's because 
the concept of critical race theory is really multifaceted. It intersects in your home life. It intersects how you operate in school, in the workplace. It touches everything. And by that very definition, it's really hard to nail down what that means in terms of addressing it, what that means in terms of having conversations around it. And so then I think when you have bad actors where it's you want to latch on to any question of race, any question of racism, and just give it a bogeyman labeling, you can do that very easily with a concept like this that is hard to nail down specifically. I mean, to be clear, we have, but it is still a theory and a concept for how we move structurally in society. And a lot of people I don't think have the appetite or bandwidth to have real debates around that. And so it's very easy to paint it as one-sided and anything that has to do with questioning racism in America and what that still means today. Yeah, I think the term when Republicans use it in particular has come to mean something much bigger. It's a kind of a stand-in for all of the the fears that white Republicans have about America becoming a more diverse place, about questioning the traditional narrative of American history, questioning the idea that America is exceptional. And specifically with the element of teaching it in schools, I think it also plays into things that we saw like with Common Core, this idea that wokeness or liberals are going to appropriate what their children are learning and therefore their children won't share the old timey values of America that they grew up with. I just think it's such a loaded term that clearly goes beyond the academic definition now. So two big questions here. One, is this a classic two-party political issue in that Democrats are saying critical race theory is correct? This academic theory from the 1970s correctly describes American society and is pushing for it to be adopted in schools or just as a kind of framework for understanding American society, and then Republicans are pushing back against it. And if that's not the case, if this is not just a two-party issue with one party pushing for and the other party pushing against, how did it loom so large in certain parts of American politics today? I'm not aware of any national Democrats against critical race theory. I'm very tempted to believe this is a partisan issue because critical race theory, for the most part, was flying under the radar until Trump last year ordered federal agencies to stop anti-racism training that addressed topics like critical race theory or white privilege. And he also was very critical of the 1619 Project. I think he called it warped and distorted. And then you fast forward to 2021, and a number of Republican-dominated states have passed a ban to critical race theory teachings in schools. So I think Trump definitely played a role in politicizing it and getting us to the point where we are today. Alex is right that national Democrats have not really come out against critical race theory. That said, though, I think this is more complicated than just a Republican think it's bad, Democrats think it's good issue. So at this point, there was a YouGov economist poll that did show that 70 percent of Americans, which is an overwhelming majority, think racism is somewhat a problem. So, you know, kind of a proxy then for critical race theory, because that's what it says continues to be a problem in society. That said, though, there was a gap among Democrats on who saw racism as a problem and support for critical race theory, with more Democrats in support of critical race theory. And the reason why I highlight that gap is I think it goes to something that 538 contributor Neil Lewis wrote for us recently, which is that when it comes to understanding racial inequality, particularly among white Americans, there's a really big misperception. They underestimate the extent to which it exists. And I think you're seeing that in that YouGov 
economists poll in the sense that Democrats believe that critical race theory is a way to think about inequality, but when confronted with the extent to which inequality still exists in the U.S., they underestimate it. And so that opens up, I think, in the same way that the debate around cancel culture has shown to resonate a little with moderates, or at the very least, it doesn't turn them off. And this is like another convoluted chapter in that debate. I think something similar could factor into this, right? Like, I personally believe racism is wrong, but when asked to confront in a poll the extent to which it exists, maybe I don't see that in my life, given what my neighborhood, my family looks like. And I think as we get closer to the 2022 election, this isn't going anywhere. And there is also on the flip side of this, I think a really concerted effort. There was this great quote in this NBC article that talked about the role in which this is playing out in schools. And Christopher Rufo, who's kind of like the architect among critical race theory emerging back in conservative circles, Adam Harris had pointed this out in a really great Atlantic piece earlier this year on the topic. But anyhow, in this tweet, he says, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and we'll recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. So if that continues to be the strategy for the next two years and it remains as amorphous and convoluted as that, I think you could see a real upswing in the types of voters that plays with, particularly because it's so personal. It makes you confront what equity means. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the polling that we have on this and where Americans come down, right? So you said that more than 70% of adults think racism is somewhat of a problem or a big problem in society. That was from uh, the Economist YouGov poll. So that included, according to this poll, 57% who believe racism is a sign of broader problems that exist within the country's organizational, societal, and legal structures. Now, that is kind of what critical race theory is. So that 57% who say that they believe it's a sign of broader problems. 62% of all Americans think the police sometimes operate in racist ways, compared with 25% who don't. 46% think Congress can be racist. 48% say racism can exist within banks and financial institutions. Lastly, 58% reckon corporations can be racist. So here we have Americans saying that at times all of these different institutions, legal, financial, political, can be racist as institutions, not just somebody being mean to somebody else based on the color of their skin. So it seems like people are generally open to this idea that our society is shaped by racism in some way, but then pretty thoroughly reject critical race theory. I mean, it's not even particularly overwhelmingly popular with Democrats. So is this another branding thing where like a lot of Democrats think that there should be some funding moved away from certain areas of policing and into more mental health kinds of treatments and care when that is part of why the police are called versus the defund the police? Like, is this a branding thing? What's going on with this debate? So uh, first of all, I think it's important to note that still a lot of people, as you mentioned up top, Galen, aren't familiar with critical race theory. And I think that that group is disproportionately Democrats. I think that the term, much like cancel culture, has mostly been used on the right, on Fox News, etc. And so that's skewing the numbers. Those who are capable of forming an opinion of critical race theory do skew against it for that reason. But yeah, I think that you see this 
all across politics. You've seen it for years where when an idea that is complex gets boiled down to a pithy, often partisan slogan, it causes people to stop seeing the nuance of the issue and default toward what their party believes or what they think their party is supposed to believe. So, you know, you see it with Black Lives Matter, like the statement that the lives of black people in America are important, I think is if you kind of hold it in that way, I think it would get overwhelming support. But the slogan Black Lives Matter, which literally says the same thing but has become this political slogan, is pretty divisive in America today. You've also seen it on issues like Obamacare. Pretty much every proposal in Obamacare covering people with pre-existing conditions, letting people up to a certain age stay on their parents' health insurance plans, those were all overwhelmingly popular. But because it was branded as Obamacare, when you ask about that, it becomes a divisive issue. So I don't think that that's anything new in American politics. And I think you can add this to the list of things that people support in theory when you describe it in wonkish or abstract terms, but when you filter it into the culture war lens and framing and branding, the results are kind of predictable. I want to push back a little bit on the branding framing here, just in the sense that this conversation really started to bubble up in the wake of the racial protests last summer and the steps then that various agencies, companies were trying to take internally in terms of raising awareness among employees around systemic biases, what that means in the workplace. And then this term kind of cropped up on the right. Initially, in you know, some of the papers, critical race theory wasn't mentioned. It was the white privilege component. I think Republicans are struggling to define what critical race theory is. I think the same is true of Democrats. There was that editorial that blew up the other day of the Republican lawmaker in Alabama who, when push came to shove, couldn't really defend what critical race theory was or define what it looked like in the schools, even though he had been an architect of a bill to ban it in that state. What we're really talking about and fighting about is the extent to which Americans can talk about race and racism, frankly, and who gets to control that discussion. And right now it's a fight over control and it has real consequences. You look back to the different history textbooks that states have had. Kids in the South are taught about the Civil War differently than kids in the North or in California. And that has real consequences when it comes to thinking about what does it mean to be American? And so I think this conversation right now is less about the actual minutia of what critical race theory is or isn't. And to be clear, like some progressives actually have quibbles with what CRT stands for and if that's the best way to address equity. And it's instead become this catch-all term for anything that has to do with race and the conversation around it. I totally agree with Sarah there. I think a lot of this boils down to how much we really want to address racism at its core and its impact on American society. Like she was saying, after a very turbulent year of protests against police brutality and disproportionate police violence against Black people in 2020, some educators did expand their curriculums on racial inequalities, and now they include some more racialized historical events like the Tulsa race riot and highlight the plight of Black and brown people in the United States. But as we've seen from Republicans recently with them voting against a bipartisan commission to examine January 6th, their moves on the voting bill that we talked about earlier, I think they really just want to avoid discussions of race, period. And that's kind of where we're seeing a lot of the backlash that we see now. Does this seem like the kind of thing that could turn into a broader movement of opposition akin to 
the Tea Party or, for example, the resistance movement that we saw while Trump was in office? A hundred percent. NBC recently did a really great deep dive into how critical race theory is playing out in schools and school boards. And what was really powerful about the reporting in that story was they told it through what was happening in one school, but then they expanded it out to like, here's what it looks like across the nation. And they found that 165 local and national groups have already aimed to either disrupt lessons on race and gender, and then that there are 50 separate recall efforts to actually take local elected officials in office recall them, remove them from office. And that's according to a new report from Ballotpedia. But also the extent to which different legislatures are taking up the bills are Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Montana, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. They already have some form of restriction on the books. 15 other states are considering legislation. This is something that is building up for a movement because it's also, it's about America's children. So you have activated, motivated parents who are filing FOIA requests. And and for our listeners, the reason why I'm kind of like shocked at that is that's something journalists do where it's like, okay, we want to find the truth with how government is moving on XYZ issue. Like this is very dedicated grassroots efforts. And I think it's concerted and organized. That's what NBC found in their reporting in terms of the scope of this. And again, because it deals with America's children, I think that's something that a lot of parents can then rally behind or at least be invested and curious about. I think that's interesting, Sarah, that you see that so clearly. I'm kind of less certain that it will have the same kind of momentum. I don't know. I just feel like it hasn't risen to the level of the Tea Party yet. It could. But I guess I think if you look at things like Maybe there are local chapters on the local level, but this hasn't translated to a Republican wave environment yet. And the way that obviously 2010 eventually did, I guess there's still a lot of proof is in the pudding stuff in terms of seeing if primary challenges to Republicans succeed and what's going to happen in 2022. But the Tea Party represented the first release of a lot of pent up resentment and grievance that I think was fully released with the Trump election and Trump's time in office and and January 6th. And I guess I'm not sure how much air is left in that balloon. I kind of feel like it's all out now, but we shall see. That's a really good point. Because like one question I have just moving into 2022 more broadly and electorally and like what that means is the suburbs. And at this point, you could see something like the critical race theory fights in the suburbs, maybe then swinging some of those voters back to the GOP. But I also might be overestimating the appeal that that actually has to a lot of parents. It could be that this is seen as socialism, right? That was supposed to be the big boogeyman in 2020. And that didn't really pan out all that much. So this, to your point, I think could be a similar situation and I'm giving it too much credence. It also seems to have remained on the state and local level in a way that obviously the Tea Party and resistance to Trump did not. The national press isn't covering this every day in the way that they're covering what's happening in Washington, D.C. or the coronavirus or something like that. People obviously trust their local news sources that might be covering this quite a bit in today's media environment. But do you see this becoming a national issue? Because on one hand, we said that it is a partisan issue, but the Biden administration doesn't seem to be like pushing the national adoption of critical race theory as a policy, or I don't even know exactly what that would entail. Obviously, it believes that there is structural racism in the United States, but I don't know how that debate plays out more specifically on a national level. 
Yeah, Galen, I think that's a good point. It kind of feels to me more like the Common Core debates of the early 2010s, which at times edged into the national conversation, but never really created this huge upswelling of, like at the ballot box in particular, the way that the Tea Party did in 2010 and the anti-Trump resistance did in 2018. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. But I think to Sarah's point, there's definitely room for things to snowball. My last question here is, of course, we're coming off of Juneteenth and the Senate unanimously approving making Juneteenth a federal holiday. That was the acknowledgement of racist system, obviously, slavery. That got unanimous support, but it seems like other conversations about race and the role that racism has played in American history are far more partisan. Why did that get unanimous support? When it comes to comparing the Juneteenth vote to the critical race theory discussion, I think the biggest difference there is embracing Juneteenth is acknowledging a past evil, whereas CRT is acknowledging an ongoing injustice. And I think it's easier for Republicans to say racism, slavery ended June 19th, 1865, whereas critical race theory examines how racism is embedded into the systems that we use today. I think that's probably one of the reasons why Republicans were so eager to adopt Juneteenth legislation, at least in the Senate. There were some defectors in the House, but I think that's why we're seeing the big pushback to CRT that we didn't see for Juneteenth. Yeah, I think that's right, Alex. But I would also question the Republican logic on that because I think that as you wrote in your piece about Juneteenth, the holiday itself is still kind of subversive and kind of hints at how there's still progress to be made because the holiday commemorates not the Emancipation Proclamation, but the moment that the last slaves were actually freed several years later. And then also I think the fact that critical race theory, it's about modern inequalities, but it's also about the teaching of U.S. history in a way that centers Black people more. And like the 1619 Project, for example, being a a great example of that, or teaching about the Tulsa race riots and things like that. So the Republicans are still against acknowledging some past historical racism and atrocities. But slavery, I guess, is already part of the conversation enough that they felt like slavery is bad, and so they felt fine saying so. And this is probably reading too much into Senator Tim Scott's rebuttal to Biden's address to the nation earlier this year. But, you know, the big line in his speech was America's not a racist country. And so I think what we're seeing Republicans trying to straddle electorally is, well, the Democrats are radical. They're pushing things too far. But we're not racist. Look, we backed a bill that says discrimination against Asian Americans is wrong. Look, we backed celebrating Juneteenth as a holiday. We're not backing things that have to do with critical race theory because it's an overreach. And I think they're trying to thread that needle and we're seeing that play out in these votes then. Yeah, Sarah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I've actually been thinking a lot about Tim Scott's speech recently and how in this whole debate and how he said within minutes of each other, I'm a black man, I've been pulled over on questionable pretenses. And yet at the same time, he said, America is not a racist country and how Republicans are trying to thread that needle. I think it's really interesting. All right. Well, we will see how this debate continues to play out, but let's leave it there for now. So thank you, Nathaniel, Alex, and Sarah. Thank you. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. 
You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. And I should say, actually, this week, we are going to have a mailbag show. We're going to take your questions and try to answer them to the best of our ability. So that'll be coming out later this week. But more importantly, that means send us your questions, tweet them at me. You can send them to podcasts at 538.com. You can even record your question on your phone and then send that audio to podcast at 538.com. Whatever way you want to use, probably not snail mail, but any other way, send us your questions. We will try to answer them. Also, as usual, if you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. We're just weeks into this year, and the news is already nonstop. Two overseas wars, a presidential election already testing the democratic process, a former president in court. It can feel exhausting, borderline impossible to keep up with, but we can help. I'm Brad Milkey, the host of Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Every morning, my team and I get you caught up on the day's news in a quick, straightforward way that's easy to understand with just enough context so you can listen, get it, and go on with your day. So kickstart your morning. Start smart with Start Here and ABC News because staying informed shouldn't feel like a chore. 